Yeah, I have three audiences for this book. The primary one is millennials who are working in the space industry, just so they know that they're not alone. Because that's what I felt when I was browsing the news stories back in 2016. I'm like, well, this doesn't ring true. And I feel very alone, even though I'm not alone. Millennials are now the largest working demographic, at least in the United States. But I, I want other millennials who are working in space or planning to work in space to feel like they belong. Time for another episode of The Cold Star Project. I'm here with Dr. Laura Forsick, who is the author of an upcoming book, Rise of the Space Age Millennials. She's the founder of a company called Astrolytical. Thanks for being here. It's nice to be with you. Yeah. So your book is coming out January 2020. You ran a Kickstarter campaign for it and managed to get two and a half times the amount of funding that you were looking for, which is really great. It means people want it. And it's called Rise of the Space Age Millennials. So what is the book about and what has the process been like uh, for putting it together? It's been a long time coming. I'm a first time author, so I didn't know what I was doing. And I had to make it up as I went along and figure out the hard way. Um, so what it was back in 2016, I had the idea. I'm a millennial, an older millennial. And I just saw these recent reports coming out about negative stereotypes about millennials. And it didn't ring true to me. It didn't feel right to me. I'm like, well, where are the stories about, you know, real life millennials doing real things? And especially within the space industry, which is an area I'm so passionate about, what I've dedicated my life towards. So I took it upon myself to uh, interview over a hundred millennials for this book in a variety of fields and a variety of backgrounds and different countries. And I got a really good sense of where millennials were coming from and also what they hope to accomplish. It's a very forward-thinking book. I wanted to get an idea of where millennials hoped that we would go next within space and why, and also get an idea of what they thought millennials would accomplish before we retire. So just a very forward-looking book, but also I wanted to probe under the surface with my questions about some of those stereotypes that millennials encounter. So millennials are, um, in the, um, you know, they, they are well-connected or they're impatient or they, they're entitled, you know, all these different things that we hear that are negative. I wanted to sort of probe those stereotypes to try to understand where they're coming from and if they hold true but without directly asking people, of course, because no one's going to attribute those negative things to themselves. So um, it was an interesting book in that I got a lot of varied responses responses, but um, almost overwhelmingly the responses, responses were very optimistic and positive. Um, it, it ended up being a very refreshing book because I think in our industry, in the space industry, it's, it's very cynical sometimes and it's, it's very negative and this thing is delayed and that thing is canceled. And within the interviews of this book, I found just um, people who had not yet been overwhelmed by that cynicism, crushed by it. Instead, they were very optimistic that they, and, and we, I should say, will accomplish a whole lot going forward. So it's been a journey writing this book, um, and I'm looking forward to other people reading it and letting me know what they think. Mm -hmm. So over 100 stories from people. That's great, the feedback. Hmm. Who do you think is the best person to be reading that book? Is it, is it other millennials who want to find out, okay, what's the direction? Or is it uh, older employers, potentially? Yeah, I have three audiences for this book. The, the primary one is millennials who are working in the space industry, just so they know that they're not alone. Because that's what I felt when I was reading uh, or when I was uh, browsing the news stories back in 2016. I'm like, well, this doesn't ring true. And I feel very alone, even though I'm not alone. Millennials are now the largest demog working demographic, at least in the United States. Um, but I, I want other millennials who are working in space or planning to work in space to feel like they belong. Um, the secondary audience is older and, and to some degree younger, you know, 
Generation Z and then um, figuring out, you know, how they relate to these stories. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, preliminary feedback that I've gotten from a lot of older people who work in the space industry was very negative. Hmm. Um, they, and we maybe see this with this okay boomer trend, right? We, we tend to have these clashes of generations. And I hope they don't see that that way when I um, when they read the book, because within the book, I take care to describe how um, people are people and it's hard to generalize based on generations and it's hard to generalize based on where people are in their stage of life. You know, someone who's straight out of college has a different perspective than someone who's near retirement. And so it may just be a differences in age or a difference in status or um, different priorities of where you were raised and what values you have. Um, but on the other hand, there was also quite a bit of positive feedback with, um, you know, millennials saying that they appreciated their older colleagues for their advice and their experience. And, and so I hope that they can take it both ways, but that's the secondary audience for this book are, are primarily older uh, generations who work in space. And then of course the third audience is the, the general public who may or may not have um, any ties to space at all. Of course everyone does, but without realizing it. Um, but anybody can read this book. I, I really try to make it accessible to anyone by um, not taking too much time to have explainers in the book, but where I needed to explaining, okay, what is the International Space Station and what is this and what is that? You know, just making sure that it's very accessible to you know, my parents or whoever else might be reading it um, so they can understand what it is that we do. Okay. And so kind of as a, as a continuation of that, you, I imagine through Astrolytical, offer a, spirit, a space career coaching service. So what's involved in that? Who's that best for? Yeah, that was not the primary intent when I started my company, Astrolytical. It's primarily a consulting company for um, NASA and other government agencies, companies, and universities. But about I want to say three years ago now, I'd have to go look. Um, I realized I was getting a lot of requests from students and recent graduates for advice. Um, and I had been doing informal mentoring for several years. And um, I just felt overwhelmed with the amount of advice that I was being asked to give. And I was very, um, my time was so limited that it was more like shallow advice. And I could give a piece of advice here or, you know, connect someone and help someone out here. Um, but in order to really dive into someone's life, I needed to dedicate the time to them. And I, the only way I could justify that was to start charging for it. And I didn't know anybody else who was charging for space career coaching services. In fact, I think I was the first, or at least I'm the first that I'm aware of. Um, it's, a, it's a very niche target area that I found was extremely a need. And I was surprised to find that, and especially need for mid-level professionals who are working in a different field who want to switch over to space, hmm. um, whether that's law or communications or oil and gas or um, avionics or um, you know, any kind of field that you can think of even ones that are totally not related, teachers and dental hygienists and really anybody can switch over and work in space. It's just how they present themselves and, and what background they have that's transferable. Um, and so I wanted to let these people know that it's not too late. It doesn't really matter how old you are. And if you look at the diversity of backgrounds within the space sector, it really truly is diverse. It's not all aerospace engineers and scientists. It's a variety of backgrounds. And you yourself are doing communications right here. I mean, everybody is needed in space. So I wanted to help people and that's not only students and recent graduates, but also professionals who are working in a different field who always wanted to work in space to guide them to how they can get involved. And my coaching clients are all very temporary. So it's usually just a couple of months, a few months to guide them in that right direction because it's not my primary business, but it is something I find extremely rewarding. And I'm so grateful I've been able to help 
um, somewhere between 25 and 30 clients to, the, to date. I'd, I'd have to go look. And I've, I've got plans to roll out a few things that are um, probably helpful to a wider audience. Um, working on right now a, um, a mini course. I haven't quite figured out how to phrase it yet. A workshop, some kind of video system. I've got a number of topics I want to cover where people can um, access it on my website and that way they don't need to contact me. They can just purchase that and get some feedback immediately before they contact me or maybe I'm, I'm not, you know, I, maybe I'm too priced too high for them. And so therefore they could just use these videos to help them along their journey. Right. Well, yeah. And I'm curious about how you found that reaction to, oh, I have to pay for coaching. People are used to spending money on a, a resume update or something like that, right? Which I've been in that industry and, and helped a lot of people over the years. And sometimes that's pretty useless, the, the resume rewrite, touch up and whatnot by itself. So how have you found people's reaction to, okay, oh, I need to become a client? Yeah, it's not for everybody. And I do pro bono help as well. Um, for example, most recently with the Brooke Owens Fellowship, that's a, a fellowship for undergraduate women and gender minorities. They um, just had a deadline passed for this coming 2020 summer um, season. And also the Matthew Isakowitz Fellowship, if that deadline's coming up. And so I'm helping out students that way pro bono. But you're right, a lot of students can't afford it. And I'm very aware of that. And I actually offer a student rate, which is different from my professional rate because of that. But at the same time, when I was um, straight out of graduate school, I felt that I was having trouble with my career path as well. I had a job in the space industry, but it wasn't exactly where I wanted to be. And so I hired a career coach. It wasn't a space career coach because that didn't exist to my knowledge, but I hired somebody who, uh, there's actually a huge business in career coaching. Um, and it's, it's also called executive coaching. There's a number of things it's called. I don't strictly do resume help, but I, I certainly help people with their resumes, right? So I'm not a recruiter. I don't you know help people with, you know, with job openings necessarily, but I help them find the job. So um, my goal is to guide people. And in order for me to really dive into someone's lives and do that, they, they need to pay for my, my time. And I do as much as I can pro bono, but until, um, you know, maybe someone can give me a flux of money and I can offer this for free for students. But until that point, you know, I, I'm trying to run a business. My business is almost four years old and it's growing and I'm very grateful for that, but it's not yet where I want it to be. So I have to keep ramping up operations in order to keep my funds going. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree. They should invest. <laughs> it's an investment in their future. And, uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, I really actually give credit to the career coach that I had who really helped guide me along my way because um, I really do think that an outside perspective and a professional perspective makes all the difference. And this also could be just a mentoring person, um, someone who is formally or informally a mentor of yours, whether it's someone who you look up to within the space industry or someone outside of the space industry, you just find can give you valuable advice and really um, support you. I think that's invaluable. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I want to give you a chance to bolster against that and, and say who you really do want as a client at Astrolytical. What, what kind of work, what kind of problems do you want to be solving? Oh, there's so many. So one of my strengths is that I'm a generalist. I, I've never been able to really focus down. Um, that's one of the reasons why I never really fit in in academic areas because I'm such a generalist. I like all things space. And so the beauty of running my own company is that I can solicit a diversity of projects and a diversity of clients, and I adore that. And so my my specialties are um, really space industry as a whole, space industry, space policy, primarily focused on the United States, but I do have expertise globally as well, and I do have global clients as well. Um, 
And then I, I particularly interested in human space flight and um, planetary science and astronomy. But planetary science and astronomy is my background through education. And then I've always wanted to be an astronaut. So <laughs> I cheer on you know, human space flight, space tourism, and, and those kinds of endeavors as well. Um, and so clients I've had in the past have been, um, I just wrapped up a NASA project, um, universities, small and large companies, um, really anybody who needs my assistance with a project. And, and one thing that makes me different is that I am completely independent and I am also very aware of various biases that other people have within the industry they might have you know other clients or lobbying firms or somebody who is giving them money to say or to have a certain perspective and I don't have that so that makes my opinion completely un lots of dollars coming in to my name um, and so I find that um, I'm able to give a more honest assessment of things than some people are. You know, one of the things that I find is a challenge with doing this work is that I am naturally an optimist and I'm also a big champion of space. But within my analyses and in my job as an analyst, I must be a skeptic. I must look at things as a cynic and, and I must find those holes or find those ways that something can collapse. Because I find within the space sector, we tend to be overly optimistic and hype up projections. And so what happens when you overpromise and underdeliver is that people are going to doubt you, whether it's the public or whether it's um, you know, taxpayers and politicians or whether it's investors or stakeholders. If you continuously underdeliver what you've promised or underdeliver based on the projections that you said there's gonna be X number of money in this market by 2020 and that doesn't happen or X number of launches by 2019 and that doesn't happen, well then people are gonna doubt your credibility. And so I find that really frustrating. And so I try to be that other voice that says, well, let's take a step back, let's look historically at how things have gone. Um, and so <laughs> that's where I found that I really needed, I'm, I'm that needed voice um, of someone saying, wait a second, let's take a look at this, let's take a step back and, and assess whether this is truly accurate. Even though I am an optimist, even though I'm a champion for space, I feel like we need to be much more aware of what we're saying, especially publicly, so that people aren't disappointed a year or two or 10 down the line. Okay. Now you've done a very good job of being in the public eye. You get at least a couple of different publicity moments a week I, from, from what I could see, um, which is very good. So I wanted to talk a little bit with you about some policy questions that you've been asked to comment on recently. Uh, for example, there's a reduced ISS crew size uh, coming up, what impact do you think that will have? Yeah, so some background here. I actually used to work on the International Space Station on the science payloads side. So um, obviously I didn't work on station, I wish. But so my job, I worked for CASIS, which is now called ISS National Lab, which my job was to help facilitate science on the International Space Station. So finding universities and companies who are willing to fly their payloads and then evaluating the merit of those payloads to determine which ones should get flight opportunities and which ones should get funding. And the problem with um, a reduced crew and, and a little bit more background is that NASA, after the space shuttle program retired, was hoping that they could have both um, Boeing and SpaceX 
fly astronauts, fly NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. This has been delayed several years and they both been delayed about equally. I actually did a, a recent blog post on the Astrolytical website looking at the delays of the two companies side by side because you know some people might say that one company is behind the other, but in truth, they've both been about matched when it comes to delays. And there's a number of reasons for this that I won't get into on this podcast, but the truth is that we're looking at another year, 2020, of not having the ability of the United States to launch astronauts to the International Space Station, which is very frustrating for NASA because NASA has been paying the Russians, Roscosmos, to fly NASA astronauts on Soyuz, um, which is very expensive. But Soyuz is a, is a, um, a great craft. You know, they, they had an abort that um, thankfully was a successful abort about a year ago, but there hasn't been, I'd have to go look back in history. I don't think there's been any deaths or, or tragedies associated with that. So it's a safe ride, but it's also not something we want to be doing for geopolitical reasons. So we were hoping that we would have more astronauts be able to fly on station, on station. not only NASA astronauts, but NASA also put out um, some feelers earlier this year. They announced that they're going to allow um, private astronauts or spaceflight participants, whatever you want to call them, to be on board station. And this could be um, space tourists. And in fact, there have been seven space tourists that have flown on eight um, different missions to the International Space Station by a space tourism company called Space Adventures. And they flew on the Russian side. But that hasn't happened in a while for various reasons. Um, so there's, there is a precedence of this. But also could be flying would be um, other, company, other countries' um, nationals. Perhaps the country doesn't have the ability to have their own space agency, but they still want to fly someone who represents that country. Um, it also could be researchers. So a, maybe, a, maybe a university wants to fly one of their, I don't know what university could afford to fly someone to the National Space Station, but these are, these are options, right? And all of these people could increase the science that's being done. In fact, we've seen with the, the previous um, people who have flown through space adventures, they did do science on the space station. So not only are you looking at NASA astronauts who can do science, and then of course other international partners, and you've got Italians and, and Europeans of all kinds, and, and all kinds of people who fly on station, but also these private individuals. If you don't have the means to get them up there, then you might have to reduce the amount of science that you can do. Because primarily, you need to keep the astronauts alive. So that means you need to do any kind of maintenance, anything that needs to happen on a routine basis, or maybe it's some kind of emergency that comes up, that you need to fix things to make sure that astronauts can stay living on the space station. Science is secondary. Science is a very important secondary, but it's still secondary. A lot of the payloads are automated, so they don't necessarily need astronauts. In fact, some of them prefer not to have astronauts because they might not want the vibrations or, or some other um, interference that a human activity nearby would bring. But some of them do need humans in the loop. And so, um, unfortunately, if we do have a reduced crew in the future for terribly long, then we might have to think about reducing science on the space station. If you look at how much money has been poured into the International Space Station, it's really for two reasons. One would be the science, and the second would be international diplomacy. So you'd still have the international diplomacy, but you might not have as much science return, and that would be a shame for all of us. Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory, compliance and 
gosh, the end customer. Who would have thought about that, right? So you can sign up for this. If you go to coldstartech.com slash MSB, that's short for Make Space Boring, the mission we're on, then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted. I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. So I, I interviewed Michael Lyon, who is uh, an attorney, and he had something to do with space adventures. So if folks wanting more mm. information about that might want to go check out that episode. Tell us about NASA's commercial crew program, which sounds like it's related to what we were just talking about there. How is it different from what went on before? And what do you think could be good or bad about it? Yeah, the interesting thing that's going on within NASA is this um, conflict slash transition between how they view the purchasing of services versus the contracting of, of major contractors, primary contractors. So NASA traditionally has hired commercial companies to build things or do things for them. For example, right now, NASA is building the Space Launch System rocket with the Orion capsule on top. They've been doing this for you know over a decade now. Um, it is a NASA program. It is a NASA rocket. It is a NASA capsule. That is being built by Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Um, so that's the difference there is that NASA owns it. NASA is overseeing it. NASA claims it. However, you also have flights that are contracted out. NASA contracts out to United Launch Line, SpaceX, um, what used to be Orbital Sciences is now Northrop Grumman. NASA contracts out. They buy services to launch things into space. And it could be a launch of a sounding rocket. It could be launched of uh, cargo to the International Space Station. There have been many successful cargo flights and a few unsuccessful ones that have um, been contracted out. And NASA is trying to transition to this contractor model where, um, you know, this fixed price model where they can have a fixed price for a service. And, and this is for a number of reasons I won't get into. This is a bit controversial. And especially since sometimes it's not actually fixed prices. We've seen recently, last week, two weeks ago now, there was a, a report that came out by the Office of the Inspector General at NASA that indicated that Boeing actually received an increase in their quote-unquote fixed price contract for commercial cruise services. So there's controversy. And there's, there's a good reason to have a, what's called a cost plus contract if it's something that a company is doing strictly for NASA for scientific reasons that has no other customers. For example, building the James Webb Space Telescope. No one else is going to buy that other than NASA. Therefore, it makes sense for NASA to put that as a cost plus service so that companies don't lose money doing it. However, if it's a fixed price contract, there is risk that a company could lose money, but that's because they're building it to help their own business. You know, the, the Falcon 9 and the, you know, the, the various things that are being built or um, being upgraded, Crew Dragon or Starliner from Boeing, um, these can be contracted out. NASA's not the only customer. So there's the difference there. And there, that's a very simplification, <laughs> simplified explanation of the difference, but that's as much as I'm going to get into on this podcast for now. And you can contact me later if you're interested in, in all the other political considerations as well. All right. Very cool. Well, what do you consider then to be the weakest area of U.S. space policy today? And what would you like to be done? Yeah. So the interesting thing about NASA is that it is and always has been a federal government agency funded by Congress. You know, the presidential administrations sort of direct things from above, but Congress is the one who actually has the power to direct NASA based on 
on the approval and allocation of funds. And so it's very parochial, it's what it's called. It's, it's a, a senator in this state wants jobs in this state for this NASA center, and therefore they are gonna approve certain programs and maybe aren't swayed so much by other programs that give money to another state, for example. Um, so um, that is both a blessing and a curse, right? Because NASA is a nonpartisan agency. It is not at all Democrat or Republican. It is it is not controversial in that sense. There might be little bits and pieces that are a bit controversial because of one reason or another, which is unfortunate. But as a whole, NASA is supported by the entire the entirety of the U.S. political branches. However, what you find is that NASA then needs to continue that support by divvying out all the little things that's involved in overall 50 states. And, and so you'll find if you go on NASA's website, if you look at who, for example, is involved in SLS, you'll find proudly listing many companies over all 50 states, um, which ones they are and where they're located so that those politicians can point to jobs in their country that are going you know, what the money in the that is flowing to them because of the NASA program. And um, so that's the, the challenge there. And the current NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine, is doing a fantastic job, but he's also not able to convince Congress to spend more money on what their program is right now, which is called um, it, it, Artemis. So Artemis is the current program where they want to send astronauts back to the moon or forward to the moon, as they call it. And they need more money in order to do this because they're already spending so much money on um, NASA science programs and, and astrophysics and planetary science and, and aerospace. And the big one is the International Space Station, which right now, as far as we're concerned, is probably going to be renewed until at least 2030. That's not official yet, but that's what it's looking like. So NASA is sinking a lot of money. It's great programs, fantastic programs, but they don't have a lot to, you know, they don't have a lot of wiggle room. And they're also having to spend a lot of money on these development programs like SLS and Orion. So then where's that extra money going to come from if it wants to continue above and beyond what it's been doing? If it wants to go back to the moon and then onward to Mars, where does that money come from? They need to convince Congress and so far they have not been able to. So that's the big, big challenge. And it always has been. It's not just this administration. It's actually, if you look at the decades past, every administration has had this problem where how do you convince the government, the Congress, to give you more funds if we are not in a space race with Russia and Soviet Union. Because um, that's where that really came from. Those Apollo dollars that came from the space race to beat the Soviets to the moon. And some people are trying to create a space race right now with China. It doesn't really match reality. But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create a space race in the minds of Congress to try to convince them to raise funds because we need to go to the moon before the Chinese do. So that's where it is right now. Is uh, the best I can, but that's where we are right now with the status of space policy, at least in the United States, and at least on the civil side. And then there's the military side, the defense side, um, and then there's international space policy. And I don't know how much you want to get into all that. Right. Well, uh, I do want to. We could finish up, Laura, with a question about mega constellations. You mentioned at the start that you are interested in astronomy. And in order to do that from a terrestrial location, you need to look up. And if there are all these satellites flying across uh, your, your camera screen or your lens, you know, you're going to get these streaks right in your image. And uh, a lot of people are upset about that. Um, is, do, do the astronomers have any rights here or is it just tough luck for them? And what's going to happen as SpaceX, for example, starts putting up tens of thousands of these things? 
Yeah, no one knows to answer your question off that. Nobody really knows this is going to play out. So my background, my, my bachelor's and master's is in astrophysics, and I had the benefit of using space telescopes for the data that I needed. However, ground-based telescopes, and not just visual, but also radio telescopes, they rely on having clear skies, or at least mostly clear skies, to be able to do the science that they need to do. And so if you look right now on the internet, you can find some videos of the most recent SpaceX Starlink launch and Starlink is the mega constellation that SpaceX is planning to launch thousands actually maybe tens of thousands of these small satellites you know much smaller than have traditionally been so they're much cheaper to launch and the idea is that they want to use Starlink both to um, bring internet to the global community so that might be places that um, currently already have the internet, then maybe there's need an, another option or maybe places that have no um, internet or maybe little, little um, availability and just to increase those areas and undeveloped areas to where they can create a profit, that's the other reason, for their expensive endeavors because uh, Elon Musk wants to retire on Mars, right? So he needs all the money he can make with Starlink in order to fund his other projects. And SpaceX isn't the only one trying to do mega constellations. There's also um, Amazon and one, uh, O3B and OneWeb, and, and there's just so many. There's, there's actually, I've lost track. I need to <laughs> sit down and look at a list of how many different constellations are planned for these various companies. And so um, the problem is, how do you balance that, right? Like you said, do, do astronomers have any rights? And legally right now, they do not. So the big question is, um, do they need to, should they? Um, right now, the FCC, at least in the United States, has to approve all of these different satellites based on communications, based on broadband. And there's also the FAA in the United States that um, regulates launch and landings, um, but nobody regulates whether or not there should be light disturbances in space, <laughs> really. Right. There's right. a lot against advertising in space in the United States. So you're not allowed to have a big billboard in the sky. So there is a law against that. Should there be regulations here? And then my guess is there will be. I don't know what they're gonna look like. I liken it to a couple hundred years ago, maybe when they started having electric lights and they started having people complain about the darkness of the landscape disappearing. You know, for, for all of human civilization, the land was dark at night except for firelight, right? And so once we got modern civilization created that brightened this, the horizon, that also brightened the skies. And so now we have designated dark sky zones and radio quiet zones around observatories on the ground. And maybe that's something to consider there. Maybe we can use some of those lessons learned and apply them to the situation, although I don't know how, so don't ask me. But maybe that's what needs to happen is there needs to be compromise. Um, because my guess, and, and I'm just predicting the future here, but my guess is that this is an inevitability. We will inevitably see if it's not Starlink, it's something else is going to be filling our skies with satellites. And so this is something that we are going to need to adjust to a new reality. How do we adjust to it? And what values and ethics should we uphold here? And it's a big question, I think, that we really need to start tackling in 2020. Right. Yep. And I agree with you. I've had a number of space lawyers on, and uh, I think I'm going to get a few of them back to be on a panel. And that is a question that we'll put to them is... Uh you know, what they think about the rights of, of astronomers. All right, my guest today has been Laura Fossick, the uh, author of Rise of the Space Age Millennials and the founder of Astrolytical. Where can people find more about you, Laura? Sure, you can go to my website, astrolytical.com. I'm also on Twitter at my name, Laura Forsick, or my company name, Astrolytical. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, really, those are the best places to reach out to me. And of course, I'm always available by email as well. 
Right. Yeah, you're pretty active on Twitter and people will enjoy following you. Well, thanks so much. All right, thanks it's for being here. Great.